Welcome to the Arlington Street Church Podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Navigating the Uncharted Waters of Empathy and Compassion. Lofty title for a sermon. So this is how it went down. In the middle of January, on a bitter cold night, a young straight guy walked into a gay bar wearing a puffy-down coat and sporting a really bad haircut. I didn't actually see him enter, but rather I became aware of a feeling of loneliness, despair, or hopelessness. Although I'm generally not a new-agey, energy-feeling kind of guy, there was no denying the feeling, and our man was the most likely source. Who was he, I thought? Rent boy? Drug dealer? Lonely soul? Sexually confused? Visitor from out of town? All of the above? So I walked over and introduced myself. Our man said he was a student in college in Western Mass on winter break, thinking of transferring to Boston, didn't know the city well, was thinking of transferring to Boston, etc. He was proud of an article he'd published in the student newspaper and of a small scholarship he had funded to help kids attend college. All well and fine, but none of this explained the puffy down coat, the bad haircut, and what was he doing in a gay bar, and why was he missing a few rear teeth? None of it added up. And why did I keep feeling he was lonely despite the upbeat nature of the conversation? It was late. The buses had stopped running, so I went out on a limb and let him crash at my house. Back at home, he was clearly out of his comfort zone. An alarm bell went off in my head. I'd sensed vulnerability. The switch in my mind flipped in an instant from social to professional mode. A little pet therapy in the kitchen with Ahab, my blue and white bulldog, I thought, would be just the ticket. And it was. Later, as I sent our man off to sleep, out of the blue, I asked, do you feel safe? Yes, he responded, or I wouldn't stay. And so he did. But why was I asking him if he felt safe when I was the one taking the risk by letting him, a total stranger, stay in the house? For all I knew, he could have been a thief in the night but I went with my gut. Several days later, I was still trying to figure it all out. So I called the number he'd given me and was told in no uncertain terms that he no longer lived there. So I looked up his article online. When I read it, I was taken aback. It was about the difficulties of being a homeless college student. You see, he'd written the article about himself. Wow, I thought. How did I miss that? Several weeks later, the phone rang. It was our man. He asked if we could meet for coffee, which we did. We discussed his homelessness, 
He said he was sorry he didn't tell me before, but he was embarrassed. He looked terrible. He'd clearly been living on the streets. When I asked him, where are the people who love you? He just cried. He said he'd driven them all away. By February, our man had dropped out of school, was living on the streets, and had no cell phone. A couple of times a month, he would borrow a phone and call. We'd get together for coffee, or I would buy him dinner. He told me more and more of our story, of his story. Our man had been a ward of the state as a child, sexually abused, estranged from his family, and had been on a run, homeless, for a year. Oh, and he was a heroin addict. He became paler, thinner, more isolated, and less coherent each time I saw him. He was worried about the men in the black uniforms on the rooftops. He wondered whether they were looking for him. Now, it was marathon season in Boston, so there was a lot of extra security about, but our man was nevertheless teetering on the edge of drug-induced psychosis. I would walk through Copley a couple of times a day, on the way to work, and then on the way home, always with an eye out, wondering, when is he going to call? Is he all right? Checking out the dead guy, homeless, on the stretcher, being placed into the back of an ambulance. No, not him this time, not anyways. Our man wears New Balance sneakers. Those were Nikes, safe. I spent many sleepless nights running things over and over in my mind, and it occurred to me to look up a couple of words. Sympathy, empathy. Sympathy, I read, is the feeling of sorrow for another's misfortune. Those who walk by the homeless refusing to respond to a greeting of good morning, they may feel sorry, but it really has nothing to do with them personally. They may feel vaguely uncomfortable, perhaps a bit guilty or annoyed, but they aren't moved. Empathy involves a deeper connection to the other. Empathy is the feeling we have when we are actually aware of and vicariously experience the feelings and emotions of another without that person ever having explicitly communicated them. Empathy brings two, true meaning to the phrases, I feel your pain, I'm heartsick. Empathy is not for the faint of heart. With rare exception, six months ago, I would have said yes to sympathy and no thank you to empathy. So I'm up in the night and it's beginning to look a lot like empathy. Worse. I'm wondering just who I'm having these conversations with. Was I talking to myself? Was I losing it? Was I talking to our man? Was I talking to the universe in general? Or was I turning into a warrior like my mother? Then I had an utterly horrifying thought. Was I praying? I must be losing it, I said to myself. Praying is something I don't do. I don't even know what praying is. Confused, I remembered William James had something to say about prayer in the varieties of religious experience. My sister made me read it. Prayer, or inner communion, he says, 
is a process wherein work is really done and spiritual energy flows in and produces effects, psychological or material, within the world. If what I was doing was praying, and I earnestly hoped it wasn't, I thought, well, I better get to work so that something happens. Work, you see, is a concept I understand. And it occurred to me that empathy plus work might be what they call compassion. Compassion, I discovered, is the feeling of empathy for another coupled with the desire to take action to alleviate another's suffering. Compassion is empathy in action, as it were. I like action. So what to do? To begin with, I resolved always to do exactly what I said I would do. Always show up on time. Never say no if our man wanted to meet, no matter the inconvenience. Never judge him. Always listen more than speak. And finally, give him a great big hug every time we meet and every time we part, no matter how bad he looks or smells. The greatest disease, Mother Teresa said, is not TB or leprosy. It's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. If love was something our man was missing in his life, and it was the cure, well, I figured, I've had plenty of that in my life. It's time to start giving it away. One day, the phone rang. Our man had been admitted to Mass General Hospital. He had a massive flesh-eating MRSA infection in his foot, which had swollen up to the size of a football. Confined to the hospital, in isolation for two weeks, undergoing three surgeries, our man decided his foot was a blessing. He couldn't run. Boomed up on massive amounts of opiates for the pain, our man finally decided it was time to get off heroin. It was time for me to get to work. Compassion, I thought. Empathy in action. Here we go. Our hospital visits always started the same way. I'd walk right past the yellow precaution tape, past the doctors and nurses decked out in their yellow rubber gloves and hazmat suits, and our man, all 140 pounds of him, would sit up in bed, hold up his arms, and lean in for his hug. We met every day with members of his medical team and overcame every obstacle raised to being discharged to a rehab facility. You need to have insurance to access addiction treatment here. It will take at least two weeks to get mass health insurance. We got it in a day. You need to have a primary care physician at Mass General Hospital, and the wait is four months. We got one in a day. I'm sorry, Mr. O'Connor. We really can't talk to you unless you're an immediate family member or are the designated health care proxy. Here, sign this, done. Next. Despite doing everything we were told to do, and despite being told he would be discharged to a 10-day residential program, 
Our man was discharged to the street with $500 worth of OxyContin, a six-day taper schedule to detox himself off heroin, and told he could go to the Pine Street Inn. When I met him that afternoon, saw him standing in a walking boot, no crutches or a cane, his foot bleeding through the bandages, I thought I was going to throw up. Empathy brings real meaning to the phrases, I'm sick at heart. I feel your pain. We tried every avenue we could through the hospital and his primary care physician. There was nothing to be done. It's okay, our man told me, in a defeated, yet angry tone. I knew this was going to happen. I can stay on a bench. I've done it many times before. Knowing that the most probable result would be either that he would just down all the Oxycontin before someone stole it from him, or sell it for massive amounts of heroin, I said, it's not an option. Let's get out of here. You're with me. After buying a cane, we went for drinks and dinner. You see, I was leaving for Florida in 36 hours. Empathy needed to turn into some pretty productive compassion and fast. Over dinner, we wondered what was happening. Why did we have this intense connection? Last time I checked, I decided not to have any children. Being practical and action-oriented, I said we'd have time to figure out the whys later on, but right now, we were in crisis and needed a solution that was going to lead to a detox program and fast. I really want to do this, but I'm scared, our man said. You should be scared, I said. It means you know what's on the line. I know, he said. I'm going to do this for me, but I also want to do it for you. You could really hurt me, I said. I know. That's one reason I'm so afraid. I've hurt so many other people. I'm all in. Are you? I asked. Yeah, he responded. I'm in. Looking across the table, I felt like we were two naked souls on a tightrope trying to perform some impossible high-wire act. It wasn't pretty. I felt like we were holding on to each other, hoping against hope we wouldn't fall, and there was no safety net. That night, I checked our man into the Chandler Inn, dosed him up with OxyContin for the night, took the drugs and his pants, and went home. That way, I knew he would still be there in the morning, and he was. I called our senior minister, Kim, who put me in touch with Kate, who knows many people in recovery. I called my friend James, a psychiatrist who works in the field of addiction, and explained what had happened. He emailed me a list of 20 detox centers in Massachusetts and told me to just call all day long until we got in somewhere. We started calling at 8 o'clock in the morning. At 4.30 in the afternoon, our man finally got into High Point Detox in Brockton. Score. Through many twists and turns, and with the help of Kim, Kate, Jeff, Leo, and Bobby, two weeks later, after successfully completing the detox program, our man finally got into the Answer House, a six-month residential program in South Boston. The Dalai Lama tells us, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion.
If you want to be happy, practice compassion. It turns out that the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness may just be love. Today, our man is 85 days clean and sober, working a full-time job, in therapy, going to 12-step meetings every day, and eating endless amounts of greens. When I asked him why he decided to get clean and what makes this time different from previous attempts, he wrote to me, the pain inside me made me want to change. I didn't like who I was, and I was always knew I could be more. This is the time I take control of myself and handle myself as a man, a strong companion, a human, and finally, that dreamer who saw this day coming. I just had no idea that I needed a hand, a push up that hill so I could finally see clear across the range of my dreams. It was climbing that steep hill and looking down on the lies within myself that brought all of this to a head. Make no mistake, it's made me cry, yell, and scream for a better tomorrow. For today, for right now, I will continue to fight for myself, my productivity, and against the demons that cause me to procrastinate. I will no longer hold back. I cannot be stopped. After 85 days, I feel as if I've climbed the Himalayas, swum across oceans, and beaten down the devil. Our man, you see, has a new lease on life. So why did I decide to reach out my hand? I'm not 100% certain. Maybe I was treating our man like the son or brother I never had. Maybe I saw an unlucky version of myself in him. But I do know that as we stood on the sidewalk after he was discharged from the hospital, with no place to go but a park bench, and with nothing but a bottle of Oxycontin and a bloody bandaged foot, I felt morally compelled to take a deep breath, grab him, hold on to him tight, and take a giant flying leap of faith off the cliff, knowing, somehow, that it would all work out. Could it all go wrong? You bet it could. Were the sleepless nights and endless worrying worth it? Absolutely. To see our man smile today is to see the face of joy. In a recent text to me, he said, thank you, I love you, you're stuck with me now. You've got a friend for life. Ditto, I responded. We're happy, my friend and I, one day at a time. And to think, this entire journey started when, in the middle of January, on a bitter cold night, a young straight guy walked into a gay bar wearing a puffy down coat and sporting a really bad haircut. He sat down at a high top table. A while later, I walked up to him and said, hi, I'm John. I'm Caleb. Cross your fingers. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a donation by checking the mail or through our website.